Have you ever heard the expression, full circle? Well, as you know, I love journeys and my journey took a full circle on November 2nd. I was delivering a keynote, Marble Slab Creamery, and it took me back to the day I turned 16 years old. I was five foot one. I was just thankfully had a final growth spurt. And I got a job at Seal Test Dairies in Montreal. And my job was to scoop ice cream. They had a little ice cream shop off their dairy. And every night there'd be a lineup. And if it was a sunny night, it'd be a lineup around the block. And I remember that summer, I grew my first bicep, but it was only in one arm, the arm I scooped ice cream with. And I just realized that how much I enjoyed having people come in and the whole excitement of serving them and having them taste it for the first time, share a taste with somebody else. And I just realized that was just magical. And so then when I had a chance to come out and speak at this event, I realized I might've served 200 people that summer, but I was gonna interview someone that served thousands through his organization. He's an entrepreneur. And I often talk about entrepreneurs' journeys because they're not you know, Hollywood romance is about how wonderful it is to be an entrepreneur, but along the way, there's a lot of speed bumps and occasional sledgehammers. So today I'm very honored to introduce you to uh, Cam Inglis, who's the founder of Marble Slab Creamery in Canada. Welcome. Thank you. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. You know, we talk about journeys and I was interesting when I started researching yours after you agreed to do the podcast, Diane Buckner, who's the host of Dragon's Den, good friend of mine, wrote an article about you. I think it was in 2011. You almost screamed out of the newspaper saying, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Before I get to that, because I think there's a bit of a lie there, because if I, the other article I read about you was your original aspirations wasn't so much to be an entrepreneur, but a professional hockey player. <laughs> That's correct. That is true. When did you trade the hockey bag for uh, deciding you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Well, it's interesting because now with the benefit of hindsight, I hadn't, I, I thought I wanted to be a hockey player. And so basically I went down the same road many of you where you get the, the, the scouts weren't calling, the NHL wasn't calling. It became obvious that uh, I just wasn't going to be good enough at hockey. <laughs> but uh, it, the reason why I say with the benefit of hindsight, it's kind of funny because I have some friends that that played professional and that just recently retired. And I would have been the worst professional hockey player or athlete at all, because the organization that you play for completely owns you and they tell you exactly what to do and when to do and how to do it. And uh, you have no freedom and you have no time of your own. I mean, if they pay you millions of dollars to play hockey or do whatever, uh, it's basically all theirs. And so it's funny how now as an entrepreneur, you know, probably most of the franchisees here, no one likes to listen to much. They want to do their own thing and keep going and changing and doing, doing your own thing. So the entrepreneurial path is uh, quite a bit different than the sports path. But the first step on that journey, though, which I was thought was a little anomaly is you went to accounting school. When I came to the realization as a 20 year old playing junior hockey that uh, the NHL wasn't as close as I thought. I phoned my dad and said, Hey, like, I think I better go back to university. Um, which of course, first I had to upgrade to get to university, but, uh, this is a different story. And my dad said, okay, well, I'll find something for you. And of course, newspapers were still the thing. So I came back for, uh, at Christmas break for that season. I was playing in Quinell, which is in Northern BC. He had highlighted all of the different jobs that 
were in the newspaper and they were mostly accounting. And he said, um, you should go back to university and you should go in accounting. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And, uh, what do, you know, what do accountants do? And he's like, well, you know, they can make lots of money and they can do this, that. And, and so, uh, so I packed in hockey and I came back and I upgraded for a semester and then got into Mount Royal College, um, started doing accounting and I did a couple of years. And I, I remember thinking, man, this is going to suck. Like if this is what I have to do every day, this accounting, it's so boring. And I joke now with my friends that are in it, like there's only one way to do accounting. Like, so I, I kept thinking, well, but then what? So I quickly realized that I wasn't going to be an accountant and I didn't really know how to get out of that because I had put two years into it. And then I transferred over to UFC because I finally got my grades high enough. And I switched into economics and finance, which I obviously now learn are, are much more thinking degrees as opposed to mundane routine. So when Diane Buckner and you said, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur, that seems to be that really started to be your North Star when you got out of university and you found yourself in the real estate business. My partner, well, the, one of my co-founders with Marble Slab uh, had a real estate business in commercial development. And so uh, I worked for him uh, while I was in university. And when I got done university, uh, he, he and his partner had a little bit of a dispute and they were going to uh, end their, their uh, real estate business. And so I stumbled into the housing business um, selling houses. I had another uh, introduction made to me to a, a company, a big home builder in Calgary called Homes by Avi. You know, you talk about location, location, location. If I remember that job, from what I understand, they gave they gave you what we often call a dogless lease. I mean, you weren't they weren't actually signing you into an area that had a lot of robust demand. But you turned that around. How did you do that? I didn't know at the time that he hired me to sell houses in the community it was called Lake Chaparral, which is at that time was the furthest community south in Calgary. It was on the other side of what's called 22X, which is now the ring road. And there was only one dirt road going down into Lake Chaparral. And uh, Avi, he, he pitched me really well. He, I said, well, how much can I make? And he says, you can make as much as you want. You know, and I thought, wow. He's like, no cap. I thought, wow. Okay, so, you know, most of my friends were making... 10 bucks an hour and I could make as much money as I wanted. And what he didn't tell me is that the two salespeople before him, before me, sorry, uh, they hadn't sold a house in Lake Chaparral in 14 months. And it was so far out of the city at the time. And there was no infrastructure that no one wanted to be out there. I got out there and all I could see was this brand new show home. And I couldn't believe how nice a new home was. And the only home that I really knew was sort of my parents' house and a couple of the billets that I lived in and, uh, over the years of playing hockey. And I thought, wow, if anyone ever saw this, they would definitely want to own one of these things. And, you know, that turned out to be probably one of the most pivotal moments for me looking back in that the lens that you look through is so important. So that first year, I sold 44 houses in Lake Chaparral. And then I won uh, Rookie of the Year in Canada for new home sales. You know, it reminds me of the story of the Bata, Bata Shoes, which was a Canadian company. 
immigrant from Czechoslovakia, their shoes were so popular in Africa, they're called batas. And yet when he first went to look at that market, they sent two people down. Uh, one took the north part of Africa, one took the south. And one person came back and said, there's no market here. Nobody wears shoes. And Bata came back and said, I've never seen a bigger opportunity. No one wears shoes. And he's, so it's a great lesson in life is the sense of the lens that you look at the world. What was the next move on the chessboard for you? Because you certainly, a lot of entrepreneurs like is the fact that there's no upside, but with that comes risk because there's no necessarily a guarantee, especially if you're in a commission only world. So where'd you move the pieces next? Yeah, well, so it was interesting. So Avi, you know, who was himself obviously a great entrepreneur, he he told me there was no upper limit to my earnings. And of course, I didn't understand at that time that that meant that there was no salary either. Fresh out of university, I remember I had I had a line of credit at, that had no balance and it was a $5,000 limit. And so I remember thinking, okay, well, my burn rate at that time living with, you know, three or four roommates was maybe like 600 a month. So I thought, well, I've got about six months of living here on my line of credit. I realized quickly, like, I, I better start selling houses. I better start moving, moving houses here. And so I did right away. And then, and then Avi forgot, he failed to tell me about part two of that, which also was you never got paid until the house started construction. And then you only got half. So that you got half when that started and then you got half when it finished. It was his way of making sure that you stayed with the customer right through the process. What I started to uh, realize quickly was that there was enormous potential in creating and building long-term relationships um, with customers. I, in that community, um, I ended up selling houses again to people because it had multiple markets. It had sort of an entry level and it had move up and it had a state on the lake and that kind of stuff. And and so that that sort of got me thinking about, well, what could I do um, that was sort of bigger than this? And, I, and, I, and I'd always stayed in touch with um, uh, Bernie, who was my, my mentor at the real estate company. And we were we went on a trip one day and to uh, to Phoenix, where he was building a hotel and a broker took us to a ice cream shop. And he said, you guys should see how they make this ice cream. And it was mixing it up on the slab and. We, we were totally enamored with how the, the style and the format of the slab and we were flying back and, and Bernie says, ah, you know, Cam, like maybe you should look into that. Like, I didn't even really know what that meant. Um, like what, look into what, you know, you could write a business plan. And, and so I, I joke with people now, I said like the only really tangible thing you learn coming out of business school prior to working is how to write a business plan. So I wrote a business plan, started off with like, what was the business? Where could the business go? Who are the customers? Who are the competitors? Where And, and as I was writing the business plan, it was sort of, there was a bit of an aha moment where I was like, wow, there, there doesn't appear to be anybody in this category. I mean, there's lots of people in the ice cream category, but we kind of had Dairy Queen, Baskin Robbins, and then independence. Those were kind of our three groups. And then we said, but, but who's on the top? Like who is the, who's the premium provider? Who's the, and, and it, it sort of became obvious that the answer, there was nobody, there was nobody at the very top of the class. It was right when Starbucks was really hitting and you could get 
people wanting drinks, you know, this many pumps, this amount of sugar, the extra hot. It's the whole personalization move. Yeah, the customization. And so I, at the time, we really thought like, wow, this is sort of, I mean, this is the Starbucks of ice cream. You can get it however you want it, whichever way you want it. You can get it custom to yourself every time, anytime. Our eyes got big. We saw a big opportunity. So how'd you convince the, the you know, Marble Slab in the States to surrender north of the 49th to you and Bernie? Was it just a check or did they see something in you? Or Because that's, that's a fairly, that's a big leap of faith for them. We just phoned them. And at that time, they were based in Texas. And the guy's name was Chris Dull, who was the, the uh, development guy. And we just said, hey, you know, this is who we are. We're from Canada. Wonder if you guys have ever thought about selling ice cream in Canada. Good Texas boys, like yo, y'all are from Canada. <laughs> he just said, uh, you know, we haven't really thought about it, but y'all want to meet. So we had this really initially strong relationship, like right out of the gates. We just had clicked. So we got all excited, and then we we kind of got nervous. We thought, oh, they seem too eager to want to come up here. We better go down there, make sure they've got an office and. They've got people and there's like activity going on. And so anyways, we flew down to, uh, we flew down to Houston and we met with, uh, the owner's name was Ronnie Handcammer. And we, we just chatted about it. We just said, Hey, like, this is what we see. Here's the opportunity. This is what we think the market could hold. And you could see the relationship was good. Like we had, we had common beliefs in, in, sort of the partnership and how it's got to, we, we, we got to work together on this. We're, we're, we're charting new territory. And it took about a year to kind of get the, the deal done. Anytime during that year that you just wanted to say, this is a lot of work. I just want to get back to doing real estate. No, in fact, on the encouragement of both Bernie and my employer, Avi was I kept selling houses and the show homes used to be closed on Fridays. So Thursday night, Bernie and I would fly to either Phoenix or uh, Texas, uh, Houston, because they had they had kind of two different offices, and and we would meet with these guys monthly, and then I would fly back on Saturday mornings. I would land and drive straight from the airport to the show home. I worked uh, the whole time, uh, right up until we. We inked the deal. So, tw- so 20 years ago, I mean, we cut the cake last night and, um, and saw today, this morning, you're presenting the growth and such. What did you learn about yourself going from thinking about the desired outcome, the gauntlet of running that year, getting the deal done to making that first store open? The first thing was I didn't really understand then how much financial sacrifice was required to get going. I, I quickly was tuned in uh, by Bernie on that one because my salary for the first year was 36,000, which was down from a much larger number selling houses. In year two, it could be bumped up to 42,000. I was thinking, holy cow. And and then he said, and and, and then it would have to hold there for another year. My combined income for three years was like half of what I had been making. And so... I was sort of thinking, okay, well, I'm going to have to really uh, be diligent here and uh, I, I better not uh, screw this up. You know, when I hear new stores open up and franchisees, 
about how tight it is. Like I, like I know how tight it is. You can't really learn that. You have to just go through it. So you get the thing going and, you know, you've got some interesting things I'm already learning about you in the knapsack. I mean, you're chasing what was important to you versus what wasn't, even though accounting provided you security, willing to risk and reward, going in there and understanding you got to tighten your belt. You get this thing moving. I'm going to for- fast forward the story a bit. And just as it's starting to create some momentum, a pretty big competitor called Tim Hortons yeah. hits you with a pretty hard sledgehammer. That was a challenge. Uh Coldstone, you know, made an announcement that they were partnering with Tim Hortons. And, uh, you know, obviously Tim Hortons, pretty powerful brand. Uh, Coldstone, pretty powerful brand in some parts of the U.S. They made it well known that they were coming after me. And in fact, they opened three co-branded stores literally in one night. They went in, put signs up, they put, and they put three stores all around the corporate office. And so it was pretty obvious that they were, they were coming for us, you know, both figuratively and literally. And so we obviously had tremendous fear in the system and there was lots of panic and there was many franchisees that felt like this was it and we were going to go down. You know, I'm kind of by nature a fighter, you know, I, I don't go looking for fights, but but if you want to fight me, then, uh, you know, we can go. Um, and, and so I that's how I kind of put my helmet on for Tim Hortons. I thought, okay, no problem, guys. I mean, I, I sat up for nights and nights and nights. And then it kind of came to me that what we had to do was get the franchisees together, get on a call. And we had to make a list of all the things that you know, they could do and we could do. And some of our older franchisees probably remember these calls. We were just spitballing, like, let's just get it all out. And, you know, it was like, they got more money. Yeah, they got more money. They got more stores. They got more stores. They have more marketing people. Yeah, they have more marketing people. They do TV. They do that. And we, they just, we just rattle off this list. It was so long. It, there was pages and pages of stuff that we wrote about Tim Hortons and all the different ways that they could just totally annihilate us. Well, let's look at ours. What do we have? Right away, someone's like, well, our ice cream is better. That's a good one. Let's start with that one. Our ice cream tastes better. Well, we can make decisions quicker. We could get flavors out. We could. And so all of a sudden, we realize that, you know, you don't have to shoulder tackle an 800-pound gorilla. You do need to take them to the ground, but you got to clip them at the toe and then at the ankle and then the knee. And then you got to push them not over. not a fighter, you're pretty, pretty knowledgeable on <laughs> how to take down an 800 pound gorilla. <laughs> and it was, you know, then all of a sudden the, the, the problem wasn't as scary as it looked. Uh, and the job was very clear to everyone that participated in the exercise that the only thing we could control was what we did. They could outspend us, they could outmarket us, they could out everything. But what they couldn't do is they couldn't control what we were going to do. So if we wanted to launch a flavor, we could get a new flavor out, you know, a couple of weeks. We wanted to change uh the offerings, we could do it quickly. There was no there was no processes, you know, we had a call and 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 then it was really where we started to realize that we could do a way better job in the cake business. We could do more cakes. We could do them faster. We could customize them. We could, they, they, you know, they didn't have half liters. They didn't have, 
uh, crumbles. They didn't have ice cream sandwiches. They, I mean, we had all these things. And so what we decided was we had to stay laser focused on just us. You know, it worked. I mean, they, they, they went ahead and they put in uh, 120 or 25 stores almost overnight. I mean, within about two or three years, they had more than doubled what we were at at the time, maybe tripled. And what happened to them? What ended up happening was what we had projected and focused on was they had terrible service. They were slow. I think there's maybe four left in total. And they wrote down, Tim Hortons ended up writing down, it, it was about 150 million and shut them all down. There's a couple guys that hung on to them. There's one, you know, there's one in Banff and there's a couple in Toronto, but they shut them all down. You know, some of the things that we knew we were going to be better at primarily in execution was exactly what happened. So the next big one that comes out, you just, you finally, you finally take that 800 pound gorilla and wrestle it to the ground. But now all of a sudden there's about 5,000 mosquitoes coming out here. I'd say let's kill our bees in the form of yogurt. Yeah. I mean, this, this wasn't just one competitor. Now they're just, it's coming at you from every side. I'm, I remember growing up playing the game board game risk. You had to choose between yeah. a small territory that you could defend yeah. or a big territory. You got more, reward for it but if any part of your board had collapsed you failed with that strategy to me you're kind of playing risks all of a sudden how fast did that happen and what did you do to counter that one so first i would say well it was almost faster it was crazy how many stores got opened in all the brands I mean, oh, oh there were so many i can't even like you couldn't keep up pinkberry red mango Tutti Frutti, Menchie, there were so many brands and they were opening so fast. The difference was anyone who had already been through the Cold Stone thing, they, they didn't even blink. It was only people that hadn't gone through Cold Stone that got panicked. The messaging was the same. It was like, okay, guys, here's the deal. They are going to take customer transactions for a period of time. We are going to have to address this. And we, we can't just do nothing. And one of the best things that actually ever came out of that whole experiment with, with self-serve yogurt was it forced us to introduce and, and revamp, introduce unlimited mix-ins and revamp our, our pricing offering. We kind of knew it, but we didn't want to admit it. But we had a pricing transparency problem where we would have a price on the board, but it only included one topping, but all the marketing materials showed three or four toppings and then you'd get to the till and the customer would like, I, I, I used to see this all the time. The customer would hold their ice cream cone, looking at the, at the menu, thinking it was like five bucks. And then the, but the till, it, it, the checkout person was asking them for seven bucks because we'd charge them for extra mix-ins. And then we'd upgraded a cone that no one knew there was a price for. And the sales force in the slab on the store were selling. But the customer had no idea that they were being charged for all this. We realized that how we were going to regain customer transactions was reduce our, 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 our ladles, our, our, like the amount of mix-ins, make it all inclusive, make one price, put the price up there. The strategy of mix-ins came from franchisees. Uh, it was probably the most transformative thing for, for Marble Slab was for us to uh, combat that. It made us introduce unlimited mix-ins. And I remember, well, actually, I remember talking to Rick in London 
And inside of a year, he had 18 yogurt shops in London. At that time, London was like 350,000 people. We had three great stores out there. I'm thinking, was the world this short on, you know, frozen dessert? But it happened that quickly. And so the, you know, the other side of me was like, wow, like there's, there's more customers out there than we think there are. And then, you know, you talked about another time, another sledgehammer, one that none of us asked for or wanted, which was the pandemic. And that forced you once again to innovate. So it's an interesting pattern. In that case, your app, your website. Do you think that's a consistent chord with entrepreneurs that they're always looking for unmet needs, but when their back is against the wall is when they become the most ferocious because it is a matter of survival of the fittest or the fastest, as you said, or the or the more creative? Yeah, I would say for sure. I mean, uh, I would say everyone, including myself, was completely terrified when, when COVID hit. And I remember our office went from 16 or 18 down to five. My partner, Bernie, the, uh, the, you know, the accountant, he says, look, if you're, if you're waiting around for a solution from the government, he's like, you'll be broke by the time they come up with one. He's like, so put everyone on, on layoff and, until further notice. How tough was that on you? Oh, it was unbelievable. I remember it was just sitting in the boardroom and, you know, laid off 12 people in a row. It was brutal. I actually still remember Brit. Um, Brit thought she was getting laid off. And uh, at the time, Brit was our, our marketing coordinator. And, and she said, okay, okay, I know you're going to lay me off. I said, no, actually, I'm here to tell you that I'm not laying you off because I don't even know how to log into our Facebook account. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, so congratulations. It's going to be you and me in marketing now. So Brit, never give away the password. Yeah. <laughs> And we return, my three takeaways, and then we talk about why retail matters. It's Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters. I asked Canadians about their money matters. We talked debt, inflation, interest rates, and many were worried, and some felt they could lose everything. In response, RBC has created My Money Matters. It's a site where you gain financial knowledge, you learn how to manage debt, reduce stress. There's even tools and apps to help you deal with the realities of today. Visit rbc.com slash money matters. Your financial well-being matters to you and to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Cam Inglis. We taped this interview in front of a live audience. Cam is a fantastic human being, a talented entrepreneur. He owns the Marble Slab Creamery brand in Canada. And if you haven't tried their ice cream, you should. I want to now move the conversation because I was talking about my experiences delivering keynotes and actually when I was in the advertising business, working very closely with franchise organizations. And I want to have an honest conversation with you because when I've talked to the CEOs, it can be very lonely at the top because you've got to be the optimist. you got to be the person that's talking about projecting growth. you got to talk about all the possibilities. But at the same time, there's often cement that pours onto the culture when it comes to uh, tension points that can sometimes flare up. You mentioned right. a store that you've, you, the very successful store that you had to, you had to protect the interest of hundred other franchisees in your brand. What do you need to do to improve as an organization? So you're 
doing what I said, one for all, and realizing the battles external versus internal. You know, communication is always the the the, the best and worst part. Uh, but when it's going right and the messages are understood, like I think back to that COVID thing, and you know, the the website and the app were franchisee funded. We crafted up this material and this email, and we'd thought about it and we'd priced it out twenty times, and and it was right in the middle of COVID, and 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 everyone is terrified, and we hold a call and an email, and we say, look, guys. You know, here's what we think, you know, we, we do the website, this is, how, this is what it's going to cost. Here's what we think the benefits are. And everybody was a yes. We had done with a very small team, a really good job communicating the need, the how, the why. And, and, and in, in the midst of COVID when everybody was panicking and not only that, we were also saying like, also, Hey, by the way, we need some money to do this. And, you know, everyone, including myself, is trying to cut back. But now it's like we got to invest. And so that was huge. And and same with the app that we came back to everyone, you know, a year later, still in COVID. And we're like, oh, hey, guys, um, this is what we got to do. And so when the message is sent properly, explained, it's very powerful uh, for alignment because, the head office can't win and franchisees lose and the franchisees can't win and head office lose it. Like we had, it has to be win-win. That can be explained by math. You can look at the numbers, but emotionally, when I've been around organizations, when I hear seeds of discontent, it is one or the other has an unfair advantage or is winning more than the other. How do you bring transparency into an organization that says, because it's easy to say to a podium when you win, I win, or we all win together. I mean, that's, that's great rhetoric. How do you turn that into reality so that the vast majority of your organization says we're part of a team building a great cathedral versus you're making it impossible for me to compete? Yeah, I've always found that the facts, presenting the facts, like you say, show the math, like, and then backing that up, like showing people, I mean, this is, this is what our, the, the issue is whether, you know, whether it's a sales initiative or a, a promotion or a skew that we're going to warehouse. I find that most often when you are honest with people and you share the information and it's fair, they're generally on board with it. And when they're not, it's, it's usually that we haven't provided enough or we haven't dug deep enough to what it is they're really asking for or what information's missing. Because the reality is, is that I, I tell this to this group and new people coming in is that this is a for-profit exercise. Like the, you have to make money. Like this is a business. They got to make money. We got to make money. Everyone has to make money. And so what is the uh, the fairest way that we can all be profitable? Our, our warehouse initiative too. I mean, now, I mean, again, some of our franchises have been with us a long time. Um, it's hard to believe how we used to operate pre-distribution. We used to have, uh, you know, people complain about freight. We, we used to have franchisees on their own send like six pails of cheesecake mix to their store from the middle of the United States with freight, with exchange, with cross-border, with like, I mean, you think you're buying a pail of cheesecake for hundred bucks, it costs you three when it got to the store. And we thought that was the best way of doing business back then. There's an incredible book called The Founder's Dilemma, which is when is it time for the founder 
to step aside because either the business has become more complicated, but more often than not, they've lost their passion. What keeps you so passionate about this business? And I always look at three wealth. There's intellectual wealth, there's emotional wealth, and there's financial wealth. Well, I think the innovation is what, like the, just how much better the offering is today. And when I say offering, like in the store, like a customer, uh, what they can buy from us, the, the range of offerings that like, whether it's the takeout items, the, the, the vastness of our flavors, but just the outside the store, the whole system itself ordering from us, online ordering from us, like all of the different vehicles to transact with Marble Slab. There's so many more things. They're so well understood. We talk about yogurt, they're like, they, they did ultimately get 400 plus stores in the country. Um, and so it tells you there are way more customers to get out there. And we have you know, we have a really good system from, you know, online training to the store opening processes to audits, ordering like the, I mean, the, the business is hard, but all businesses are hard. You know, people that are experienced and they've been in business before, if they got dropped into our system and got told, like, give us an evaluation of this, it, I'm certain everyone would say it's excellent. I don't think we knew that before. Two more questions for you. The first, if you could wave a magic wand and get the people in the audience to do one thing superbly over and over again, what would you wish for? Oh, operational execution for sure. It's 100%. Like we constantly hear people always want to say they need more marketing. Every time we do a deep dive on our top performing stores, the findings are they execute perfectly operationally. So from clean floors, clean windows, fully stocked displays, flavor variety, cones, like everything operationally. And, and in fact, when new franchisees come to town and we say, oh, go to this store, go to that store, you, you won't believe the volume or wherever they're from. They, they actually call me and they're like, you know, I went down to Cross Iron or Masonville and they, they're almost disappointed. Like they think they were going to see a, a clown in the front jumping up and down and, you know, a, a, a big parade going on. And no, but did you notice their cake display? Did you notice, you know, how many cones they had? Did you notice how many flavors they offer? Did you notice it's the staff all wore uniforms? Did you know? So the short answer is I would make everyone an excellent operational. And my last question for you is what would you change about yourself? Or would, or would you change anything? No, I mean, I could, I, I could stand to be a little bit more compassionate. I could be slightly more flexible, but <laughs> not too much. Um. <laughs> I always end my podcast with my three takeaways because I always want to put something in my knapsack. The first one I'd say about you is you're a lot softer than you think you are. And I'll tell you why. When I toured your warehouse and you were showing me the dry training that you set up for your son so that he could come in and, and you had a hockey net in there. And, or this morning when you walked in and you had the biggest smile because your, your nanny had abandoned you, happened to be the same week that you're doing the franchising, but you got to take your kids to school. I just think it's important that we all remember that the human in humanity, 
guides us much more than uh, what accounting would have said the bottom line. The second thing is just how important fear is. It, we can either succumb to it and get overpowered for it, but what makes, I think, all of us as entrepreneurs more resilient and more resourceful is we survive what seems to be insurmountable. And we don't just survive by kind of hanging on to a life raft. We reinvent new life rafts. And you've done that time and time again as an organization. You should be just very proud of that. And whoever reached into their pockets the second year of COVID shows to me that you believe in this business. And the third thing is that you're 20 years into your journey and you talk like it just began. It's almost like a, you know, you've gone from the adolescence to your teenage years and now you're, you're graduating with this sense of, of conviction and confidence. And I have to believe in the next 10 years, you're going to achieve that desired outcome of doing what you did in the first 20 and then some. So for all of that and more, I appreciate you joining me in Chatter That Matters. I think it deserves a round of Thank applause. You. Thank you. Thank you. As you know, I'm taping this live. Mara Batal is going to come up because I had a chance to talk to Mara and her mother. You two are a force of human nature. And how I learned that is I happened to be having quite an important discussion with Cam and you burst into the office. And next thing I wasn't even in the office anymore. And I realized there was a very different relationship that was going on. So take me back to how you first met and got involved in this business and how it's impacted you personally. One day... I was going up to her office to meet her for lunch and she walked through a fight uh, between two homeless men and uh, she basically got uh, picked up and thrown against a wall. So she had a massive tear in her shoulder and she had damage uh, to her left arm, nerve damage. Um, so she couldn't work. Uh, she was on WCB. He only make a couple hundred bucks. There's not much uh, support there. So I was in grade 11 and she never had me working a part-time job um, because she wanted me to focus on school. I wanted to be an engineer. And you're also, though, just the two of you is your nuclear home. There's no dad there. It's just the two of you. Yeah, no dad, um, no siblings. Yeah. I'm an only child. Um, she comes to me one day and she's like, you don't have a choice. You need to start working. You got to carry the household. So we have a family friend um, that owned a Jugo Juice at that point in uh, Cross Iron Mills, one of the malls that we have uh, one of our businesses in. So I started working at this Jugo Juice and I'd work five days a week. I'd finish school at 3.30, get onto transit and be at Cross Iron Mills for 3.30. From 3.30 to 10.30, I would put in an eight hour shift. And very quickly, we realized that we're going to have to buy a business. So our family friend was uh, basically said, he's like, look into Jugo Juice. It's a good brand. And at that point, I was 16 years old and I'm managing this individual's Jugo Juice fully. He had more trust in me than he had in his own children. It was to the point where I'd be taking cash deposits home. Uh, we started looking for Jugo Juice opportunities and how Jugo Juice works is it's on a bid system. So it's not like Marble Slab where you have a fixed cost, you're paying your fixed cost and you open up your store and that's what it is. Many franchise systems make you bid. So it could cost $300,000 to open a store, but you're bidding to enter that system. So we were outbid by about $25,000. Um, it wasn't working out for us. So one day when I'm sitting at Cross Iron eating ice cream from Rocky Mountain, I'm thinking, I'm like, what can we do? 
one of the things that Jugo Juice that I quickly learned is that people wanted milkshakes and there was no milkshakes. So we would call our smoothies milkshakes and sell them like that. And I'm having this ice cream and I look around and I'm like, this is horrible ice cream. It hits me. I'm like, we need a marble slab in here. A question that, you know, many new franchisees ask, what happens in the winter? So my mom at that point, she's like, you know what, just fill out the application. We'll see what happens. We took it as a joke. The sales lady in development, her name was Lynn Track. So I fill out this little online form. She calls me 10 minutes later. <laughs> Here's a candidate profile. Can you fill it out and send it back? Two hours later, I'm sitting in front of Cam having an interview, this 16-year-old. I get through my interview. They provide the disclosure the next day. He gives um, Van, the vice president of leasing at that time, a call. And Van's like, yeah, I have a spot for you. It's in the middle of nowhere in the mall. So this all happened in a span of a week. My mother goes to the bank. She pulls out $25,000. we are going to go meet Lynn at the lawyer's office to execute the franchise agreement. She got cold feet. She didn't want to do it anymore. So she drives back to RBC with uh, this bank draft and says, I want to cancel it. I want my money back. And this lady at RBC, even though a bank draft is reversible, she says, no, this is treated as cash. We can't reverse this. So unfortunately, you're stuck with it. She called the manager. She called the supervisor. For some reason, something in the universe that day did not let that draft get canceled. So we drove back another 10 minutes to this lawyer's office in the Northeast. We met Lynn there. We executed this. And even Cam at that time wasn't certain about the location. He wanted us to buy a location in another spot that we weren't certain about. Um, and my mother at that point was very fearful. She's like, what did I just sign myself up for? I was fearful because I'm like, I'm the one that created this whole mess. And Cam is fearful because this mall is struggling at the time. And we got the worst possible spot in the mall. And this is coming from a guy that went to sell houses where nobody yeah. wanted to buy houses. Yeah, okay. yeah. So everyone was just very scared. So fast forward about nine months. We opened on December 13th and this store within two weeks starts outperforming the numbers at Chinook Center. That's in the worst end of the mall, but we were just very aggressive with how we opened our store uh, with marketing, with different tactics. We were couponing. It's, it's a funny thing to note that there was actually two stores in Chinook Center at that time. And one store was beating two stores with combined revenue. That's how powerful it was. So everyone's like, don't get too excited. It's the first year, it's the honeymoon phase. The second year was even better than the first year. And they're like, it's just luck. It'll go down the third year. The third year was even better than the first and the second year. You know, I talked about when I started hearing the rest of the story, which is even, in fact, I'm going to bring you actually back to be a guest in the podcast. I got a couple of quick questions. You studying to be, an, you know, engineer, your mom and stuff. How has it changed your relationship with you and your mom? Because you, how many stores do you have now? We're at uh, five stores. And then you just bought into the corporate store too. The corporate store, yeah. And we'll have the sixth one next year. You're now... 29, 29 yeah. no longer this, you know, the kid and thing. Yeah. And what's your relationship like with Cam as well? Because I'm curious about how that factors into success. I, my relationship with my mom has always been, she's my best friend. Someone on the marketing team many years ago at an AGM made a comment about me and my mother saying that we complement each other. Her weaknesses are my strengths and her her strengths are my weaknesses. And that's why things just work so well between us. And what advice can you give to others? Because we often start that way in a relationship, including marriage. 
And then over time, the power can flow, the who has got influence, who's got authority, egos can get in the way. How have you managed to keep that in that kind of relationship? I think at the end of the day, it's understanding that you have to make things work, regardless of conflict, regardless of egos, regardless of what, whatever the situation is, you have to learn to remain calm to get past the storm. And I want to turn it to Cam because I thought it was really interesting when I pulled you from the meeting and just to talk a little bit about it because the way you walked in the office, I thought was like, you know, is it interesting how you described it? I mean, father figure, mentor, but at the same time, he's as tough as hell on me. Cam has completely changed my life around from being a 15 year old that walked into his office to open up one store. My game plan was always to live in the glitz and glam of the oil and gas world. That's what you do in Calgary. In my third year, when the economic climate in Alberta completely um, changed with the collapse of the global energy market, I was sitting in his office and he's like, what's your game plan? I'm like, my game plan is I'm going to go get an MBA as soon as I'm done. And uh, then I'm going to climb up the corporate ladder and cross iron mills will be my side hustle Friday, Saturday, Sundays. And he was almost offended with uh, the comment that I made about the MBA, right? He's like, I'll teach you an MBA. And he's like, okay, what company do you want to work for? So I tell him the company that I want to work for. And he pulls up the junior engineer position and he's like, let me get this straight. You want to be locked into a nine to five, five days a week for 52 weeks out of the year with a possibility of three weeks of vacation time to make what you do in one quarter in one year and pay taxes. He basically gave me advice. He's like, if I was you, I would do this. He has kept me disciplined, motivated. He has seen things in me I haven't seen in myself. Have you improved him? I don't know, Cam. Have I? <laughs> Wait, for those who can't listen, there was a very <laughs> deep and somewhat uncomfortable laugh in the corner. Yeah. You know, Amar, I just wanted to just thank you for coming up. And the reason I brought you up wasn't to endorse the franchise, but just to really talk about how journeys change along the way. And it's wonderful that you're in a position where you still have your best friend and your mom, that you're opening more stores and can be the kind of ambassador that I think this company wants for their brand. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Joining me now is Graham Green. He's the Director of Franchise Markets at RBC. And Graham and I have become good friends on LinkedIn. So I asked if he'd come on and join the show and talk more about his expertise, which is franchising. Graham, uh, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Tony, thanks for having me. This is a great honor. It's uh, long overdue, my friend. We we do exchange a lot on LinkedIn, but I was reading one of your posts. I think you were over the holidays and you're down looking at great franchises in the States. First of all, that's not necessarily a holiday because it sounds like you're doing some work. But I'm just curious, what makes for a great franchise? I think what makes franchisors great and what their secret sauce is, is how they support their franchisees. They have support systems in place to make sure that they can see things far down the road if there's going to be some problems. They see opportunities for future growth and great communication skills. On the other side, because I know you provide a lot of capital for people that want to get in to buy a franchise. What makes for a good franchisee? Like, what do you look for beyond the fact that they might have capital that you'd say, this is a, this is an individual that could really take that, you know, as you talk game book and score a lot of touchdowns with it. There's someone that actually has to work with the playbook. They can't just go into a franchise and just say, I've got money. 
I'm going to put it in here and make it work for me and sit back and not do anything. I think the best franchisees that I've ever had to work with are the people that are willing to get their hands dirty. They're the ability to go in and work every position within the business that they're in for the franchise. And again, teamwork. I often see when I'm actually delivering keynotes at conferences where there's franchisees in the audience, the best seem to own more than one. Is this what you see as a pattern that once people really understand this playbook, then the idea then is they can expand their footprint? Or is that just a certain individual that wants to add both that complexity and opportunity to their lives? I think I've been very fortunate over my years at RBC working in the franchise space to work with franchisees that own multiple locations. But what I can say is the ones that start with one, for the most part, they want more than one. They want two, and when they've got two, they want three. I think when I was talking to some franchisees at you know, a very popular uh, burger and fries franchise, they said the first two were absolute killer on them. They worked so hard to establish that. But once they hit the fourth location and got their teams set up, it became a lot easier for them to optimize their business and produce great results. What do you like the most about your job? What do I like most about my job besides the ability to go out and eat great food? Um, it's just the people that I get to work with. Everyone's very dynamic. In the franchise space, people come from diverse backgrounds. Their experiences that they have to save up the equity to get into the business is always fascinating to me. That's always the first question I ask people is what did you do before this? Because for me, that's building the relationship. And to me, that's what this job's all about. Well, Graham Green, we were long overdue and I'm going to be knocking on your door again because there's some fantastic insights. It was magical to have you on Chatter That Matters, Graham. So uh, let's do this again. Thanks, Tony, for the great opportunity. Look forward to, to connecting with you again in the near future. See you on LinkedIn. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening, and let's chat soon.